This week on the Physio Foundations podcast, I'm talking to recently graduated physiotherapist and PhD candidate Jess Coventry about networking and how to find mentors. Welcome back to the Physio Foundations podcast, where we talk about the knowledge and skills that provide the foundation of expert clinical practice. So Jess is another Monash Uni physio graduate who I know very well. And Jess was a student with us, of course, and then a peer mentor and an educator of other students when she was a student within our peer-assisted study study sessions program, if I can say it properly. And Jess is now busy. She's graduated. She's developing her education skills as well as doing a PhD and Jess approached me about this episode and it's her idea. And I thought, let's do it. It's a very good idea. We're going to have a discussion about how to do networking and how to find mentors and anything in and around that. So there's a lot to discuss. Let's get on with it. Jess Coventry, welcome to Physio Foundations. Thanks, Luke. Thanks for having me. How are you, first of all? Yeah, I'm good. When did you graduate? Just for the, uh, complete the bio. One end of twenty twenty one. Yeah. So yeah. So not too long ago, and how's the career going so far? Um, so far, so good. Um, PhD is recent. I feel like in the two years, it hasn't even been two full years since I've graduated, and I feel like I've tried a lot of things to get to where I am. Well, well tell us about some of them. Tell us a bit about your your background and interests and, and what you've done since graduating. Um, so yeah, I finished at the end of 2021. Um, and I finished my placement a little bit earlier than that. So, um, I had a time, I had a period of time off in the middle of the year where I didn't have placements because placements are those five week blocks that kind of, um, pop up and sometimes you don't have anything to do. So in the middle of the year, I started my job searching, um, and I, looked at private practice and I looked at hospitals and I looked at community health and I didn't really know where I wanted to end up, um, but I was also pretty burnt out. So I um, made the decision to go into community health um, based on the flexibility of it and the ability to work part-time. Okay. Um, So I started in community health, um, both aged care and kind of a rehab in the home uh, three days a week. And while there were definitely things I enjoyed, it wasn't what I wanted. Um, so I did three or four months of that um, before I left. And then I was jobless for a while, uh, searching for what I what I really wanted to do. And I wasn't sure what that was. Um, and then in one of those opportunity pops up and you jump on it situations, I found a education support job at a school. Um, And I went and worked at a public high school with 1,100 students and I managed their healthcare centre and every health record of every child in that school. Um, And I loved it. Wow. Um, Yeah. Who knows what's going to happen in life, right? You're going to end up doing all sorts of things that you never never dream of. That that wasn't on my bingo card. Yeah. And as part of that, I was working shortened days, five days a week, but shortened days, which meant I had a little bit more time. Um, And I took on some sessional work with um, one of the academics at uni. Um, And 
through that ended up finding a PhD opportunity um, after doing some research, some research assistant work um, and some teaching associate work. Mm. I think there's a lot in there that's very relatable for people. Yeah. Including the the part when you were not sure about what you wanted to do and also the that you wanted some work where it was flexible and part-time and buy yourself some time to think about that. And that seems like that's been a really important part of getting to where you are now where you've you've started your PhD with Professor Kylie Williams. You know I know Kylie really well. And you're doing a topic that's really of interest to you. So tell us about your PhD. Um, so I started in April, um, so very, very new into it. Yeah. Um, I am, the opportunity popped up and the PhD, I'm under the Kids Leg Pain Project, which is run by Kylie, um, which means I didn't necessarily select the topic, but the idea of when I met with Kylie and discussed it, the idea of being able to take kind of children's chronic pain, chronic lower limb pain and run with wherever I wanted to go with it was really appealing and something that has been a passion of mine from very young um, but kind of followed me throughout is this idea of language. Um, And I grapple a lot in my professional life and my personal life with labels and how people like to attach and particularly my generation like to attach labels to themselves because it feels empowering and having words to describe our own selves and our own experiences is a really empowering thing. Um, And I think being able to apply that interest into a chronic pain topic was really appealing. So I'm looking at um, the language that kids and um, healthcare professionals and their families all talk about children's chronic pain experiences and ultimately try to find ways in which we can do that better. Very interesting. It's, it's a unique topic. It and it's something that has, well, you mentioned that it was the area wasn't something that you chose because it's a part of an established project, but you have put together something that's going to get you out of bed in the morning and a PhD is something that eventually you need that. You need to be able to say, well, I've got to keep going no matter what. And it's the project itself and the topic that often drives that. So interesting. You just started this a few months ago. So we'll Very see how you go. Yeah. And always that uncertainty, I think, is a key thing. And the language is a key thing because the uncertainty of going into it and not really knowing what to expect, mm. um, which probably ties into some of the mentoring stuff. Mm. And we'll get there. On this podcast, I have deliberately included the long introduction and the bios of people and their their stories and their career choices and what's led them to go places because I know that I've had feedback from people that it's it can be a bit isolating if you don't have a group of people who you're sharing these ideas with. You don't you might be in Jess's position listening to this. Do I do a PhD? Some people are. Some people I know because people ask me that. Or what would I do if I'm feeling a bit burned out, as you mentioned? What are my options? Or where can I go from here? If you mentioned being jobless, well, that's that's a part of it, finding a job, right? But being not sure. So this stuff's all really relatable. So thanks for sharing it. It's really good. Let, let's talk about mentoring. Your idea. You you um you definitely chose the idea for this podcast episode. And what struck me about that was your um you were very good 
when I knew in university at being involved in networking and finding mentors. I think you're in the Australian Physio Association um, leadership group for students. Is that right? Yeah, um, I did in 2021, but I was on it for three years. Yeah, and and then you were also a, a peer a mentor and educator in our training program, um, and then you were helping me with um, with our tutorials that went on to online. Um, during COVID. So you, that was a, a good way you could jump in and help during those lockdowns. So tell me about that. What led you to, I want to say aggressively pursue, aggression doesn't sound like the right word, but um, to confidently, deliberately pursue networking so early as a student and also as a new grad. It's obviously, we can talk about the benefits of it and everything, but what, what sparked it in you? How come you were you went and did it? So when I originally started doing what you described and in my mind it was getting involved in anything that popped up, which has pros and cons and one of the cons being burnout, um, I never thought about it as networking. Right. For me, it wasn't about the people, which I think is a key thing of networking. For me, it was about the skills. And I knew from very early on um, that I probably didn't want to practice traditional physiotherapy long-term. However, I was passionate about a lot of the things that popped up as recurring things within physio. Um, so when I was delving into, you know, putting my hand up for teaching or volunteering for whatever it was, for me it was about building the soft skills, the communication, the ability to teach and all of those things. And it wasn't until towards the end of my final year that I realised that as a result of doing that, I was building connections and it was actually really about the people. Isn't that interesting? And a good thing as well, it wasn't so much here, Let's here's some strategic things I can do to build myself up and get ahead and build my CV and, um, you know, and develop a network that I'll leverage off later on, although all of that stuff, they are real benefits of doing that. It was more that you were there deliberately looking for skills that you knew that you'd use. But still, what um, that's that's really good, but it's not common. What drove you to want those skills and what skills did you develop by being involved in so many things at, um, as a student and as a new grad? I think partially the draw card might have been novelty. A lot of people came into... Um, physio having been school captain or engaging in all the extracurriculars at school um, yeah. and my school education didn't have that we didn't have extracurriculars other than maybe music and art um, we didn't have any leadership we didn't have any of those roles so when I came into university and and saw all these opportunities they might have been partially novel but I think the other thing is um I have always liked the interactions of, of teaching and of learning things from other people in a non-traditional format, those conversations that you have about other people's experiences and then reflect that on your own and learn from that. And I think that partially I might have been craving that a little bit as well. Um, and all of those skills, yes, I kind of, some of the things that I did, I did to put on a resume, but very few of them. Mm. 
Um, I think that sometimes the resume thing challenged me to pursue not a promotion but to push things further. Um, But overall, I felt like I could make more of a change in situations if I was involved in them. Yeah, I mean, you're on a mission. Now, I mean, you're you're in in a PhD just after graduating. So, you know, you're, you're, you're really putting you know, time and real effort into developing your career here. You're really going for it. And, and that's interesting that it's not necessarily um, all strategic and building up a resume or a CV. And, um, but, but you know that there are benefits for doing everything you've done. So if I, what, let's talk about others and other students, particularly listening to this or new graduate practitioners. Maybe they're not doing as much of that stuff. And um, what, what are some of the benefits for being involved in the professional association like you did or being involved in any number of the volunteering or teaching or any of the things you've done? What, what benefits are there for others who might be ambivalent and thinking about doing it? I think I did a lot of things and that's not a necessary thing. You don't yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. It's worth expressing. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's all individual, isn't it? It's not necessarily you have to do all these extra things. Yeah. And I didn't know where I wanted to go. So I know that there, if I was a new grad and I wanted to pursue a career in private practice, there's particular things that I might want to upskill in. But at the time I didn't know. So I did a little bit of everything. I think if you're taking on additional work, keeping in mind that physio, whether you're studying or working, is very full on. Yeah. Um, you can only do so much. It's worth doing something that either sparks your interest and you really enjoy or something that you feel that you need to really tick that box because it will benefit your career long-term. And I think that if it's not doing, it's not either it has to be filling up your cup and giving you energy or it needs to be one of those things that's a strategic strategic. Uh, extracurricular or extra thing that you're doing to progress your career and if it's not either of those things like potentially the other side of that is is it making you money potentially but I don't know that I'd be putting energy into something that wasn't either filling up my cup or creating such a good point you put the brakes on that one so nicely with that because studying any health professions degree we're talking about physiotherapy is a full-time endeavor, there's a high workload. And that often comes as a surprise, no matter how many times you'd say the workload is high, it's demanding, especially when you're young and your mates are doing other things with low contact hours and and it's an investment in your future. And the, you know, the present's happening right now. And especially when you're young, the future, okay, there it is. So being future-minded when you're young and you're studying is... Um, in a way, you're doing it because you're going to university, but it's um, difficult thing to do. So that's a really good point. It's it's very individual. Um, having said that, though, what are some what are some benefits though of, of developing a network? So you would have had a fairly strong network of people, and then from there you've developed mentors. And we'll talk about mentors in a second. What are some benefits of doing that? Of doing the things you did. I think there's a couple of things. I think one of the things that struck me right at the end was the amount of people who offered to say things, nice things about me, um, whether it be to uh, 
prospective employers or um, I was a finalist for the APA Student Award, um, which is a national award, and um, the amount of people who were able were were willing and wanting to say nice things about all the things that I'd done, I think that was a benefit. I think the other thing was having senior people around me who had made mistakes and were willing to talk about them and people who had gone in different places, the amount of people who, yeah, might have been lecturers at uni but had also worked in really niche, obscure areas that weren't talked about within the course or um, weren't necessarily directly relevant to physio. So I had this community of of really intelligent, really incredible people around me. And I think being able to see myself in some of their shoes and to, to take and give within that, who did I want to become more like, what were some of the things that I felt that I didn't or did want to bring into my own practice and my own personal and professional life, I think they're probably the main two that come mm. to mind. And you, you mentioned mistakes and the having the the honesty and the integrity to talk about mistakes. That's something that you you only really talk about with when you've built some sort of a personal connection with somebody, and that helps when you when you're working with them. And you can there's only so much we can do on Zoom and on on networking uh, on um, not networking on um, uh, various apps. Video conferencing is what I meant, um, but you're having that personal connection with people you're working with it face to face is really important. What are some mistakes that, without talking, getting too specific, that you learned from others? There's a there's a quote here in this, isn't there? It's better to learn from a wise man or a wise woman. Wise anybody learns from their own mistakes, and an even wiser person learns from someone else's. There we are. Got it out. What are some mistakes you've learned from others? There's an explicit memory that I have. It's quite specific, but um, and it was quite general in nature in that I was telling someone about some of the things that I'd done and I didn't feel had either progressed my career or given me energy and they they felt like I hadn't been rewarded for my time perhaps and I was discussing kind of these were the particular roles, these were the particular um people that I was working with and whoever I was talking to went, you sound like me 20 years ago and then proceeded to tell me how they skipped to where they are now. There was particular things that they walked away from that and walked around it and this is how they did it because you wouldn't put more energy into that. And I went, oh, okay, that's good to know. I'm not going to get any more out of pursuing this one particular path. Time to change direction. Yeah. That's interesting. And now we're talking about mentoring. So let's do that. So what, what's a mentor? What is a mentor? Let's define it. What does it mean to you? I think it's different for different people. And I think it's different between different mentors. But overall, I feel a mentor is someone who provides guidance. And I think that a part of it is time. There's really, we've talked about that development of rapport and being able to share have shared experiences and shared thoughts I think for me a mentor is someone I know you can have peer mentoring but a mentor for me is someone who knows more in some area 
than I do. And it's that- more than knowledge as well, isn't it? It's more than being taught. It's not the same as teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a broader concept. So what um, you can name people specifically, if you like, or in general terms, who are some mentors that you've had that have really shaped what you're doing so far and what the benefits of deliberately seeking mentors? So I feel like I've had a lot of mentors and a lot of them haven't been long-term. Mm. Um, the two that that probably um, I've had long-term are um, Dr. Mel Farley um, and also at the moment um, I talk a lot with Dr. Jenny Setchell, Um and that's more of a formalised mentoring program. So I've really had two who have followed my journey a little bit more deeply, whereas there are other mentoring relationships where I really feel like it's been a mentoring relationship and it's either been less formal or less long-term. I might have caught up with them two or three times in different transition periods in my life and they have been really pivotal and it has been a mentoring relationship, but it's just not long-term. Mm. I'm part of the Australian Physio Association mentoring program that they've got going now and have been registered physio for over 20 years. So I don't feel like it's been that long, but so I'm a, now I'm a, I'm a mentee in the early career researcher program in the school and I'm a mentor in the clinical version of that for the Physio Association. Really interesting experience, getting a lot out of both of those. So they're, they're formal programs. So Talk to me about formal versus informal. We'll talk to me a bit more about that mentoring, and um, and perhaps tips for people listening to this who who may be going along through their career and they they're getting managed, they're getting education, from so professional development or from university, and they may feel like they don't have strong mentoring. They, they may have employers. They might have professional development sessions happening there. They might have all the the colleagues they need to bounce ideas off or get guided by, but it's more broad than that, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So um, let, let, let's talk to that person who doesn't feel like they have a mentor. So I think you, you started that with formal mentoring mm-hmm. and the benefits of formal mentoring are often it's easier to find someone to mentor you. And I think that can be a really big barrier I think it can be both from a time perspective and a uncertainty perspective. The benefit, I think, of having that regular check-in and knowing that you're on the same page, if someone's enrolled in a mentoring program, the likelihood of them wanting to be there and wanting to mentor you is much higher. Yes. Um, so looking out for those kind of things, if you if you don't have a mentor and you're unsure of where to find a mentor and you don't necessarily feel like the skills um, as something that you possess to find a mentor, that might be a really good start. Um, and I, um, Dr. De- Jenny Setchell is someone who is a mentor through the APA mentoring program as well. Mm. Um, yeah, great. And a fantastic match. Um, mm. We get along very well. I think they've done very well with that program. Um I've lost my train of thought, but that. that was good. It was a good train of thought up to that point. And so, it, so there's real, there's really barriers to 
approaching mentors and, and thinking about why you'd need a mentor and getting that started. It's a bit like asking someone to be a friend, isn't it? You know, can we be friends? You do that when you're in kindergarten, right? Do you, I've never gone up to someone and go, will you be my mentor? But essentially what you're asking there in the formal program is for um, a commitment of regular time mm-hmm. for the person to give thought and give their um, you know, analysis of what you're doing. And it's beyond clinical skills and and um, education. It's it's somewhere in between a friendship and a uh, an employer and a an educator, but it's not any of those as well. It's an interesting relationship. If you haven't reflected on it, or you don't feel like you have a mentor in your career. I hope that this is triggering some um, some potentially some motivation to go and. Next time a career mentoring program pops up, you might think, hang on, I might do that this year. I might go and do it. So what about informal mentors? Have you have you gone up to anyone and say, will you be my friend? <laughs> will you be my mentor? Or they just, you think back on it after six months and go, hang on a second, this person has been a really good mentor in my career. I'm so glad that happened. I have both. Um, have you? And yeah. both good and bad experiences of asking people, essentially, do you want okay. to um, at the end of my, probably during fourth year um, and maybe the end of third year as well, I was trying to find people who ended up places that I wanted to be um, and I was really actively looking. Um, and this was separate, say, to taking on those opportunities to build skills. It was very person-centric. Um, so I did, a, I did a lot of work on LinkedIn um, much to the dismay of some of my non-academic friends. Um, LinkedIn is a wonderful platform, but there, there, there's definitely some stigma for those who don't use it often. Is um, there? Well, Hank, just to interrupt you then, I, I don't know about such stigma because I guess I'm a generation ahead and we don't have any. Yeah, no one really says things like that to us. What, what do people say when you're on LinkedIn? It might be a generational thing. It might be It's not problem. cool, is it? but it's very not cool. It's very uncool. Okay, interesting. Because I know I've seen a lot of students, informal students on LinkedIn have connected with them there. But it's um it, yeah, it's not TikTok. It's not TikTok. It ain't cool. Okay. And for sure, like all my physiotherapy friends are on it. Some of them use it more than others. Um often public posting for those who don't have uh, you know, the networking posting can be a bit a bit frowned upon, but it really depends. People use it however they're going to. People are going to judge you on social media or whatever platform you're using. Um, so I have used LinkedIn quite a bit um, mm. for networking. But what I do, So what do you do on it? Is, is it more the connection with someone so then you, oh, well done on your, and you just sort of like their posts and you're, you're just connected with them and you can see what they're up to? Or is it the DMs and the, is, it the, is there more to it? Is it just building a big group? of people that you've you've got there so you, you can contact them if you lose their email or is there more to it than that? Um, I do a bit of both. So with the, the liking and the posting and the following different people, that for me is there are a couple of areas of interest that I don't feel that I am um, necessarily involved in and up-to-date in. So I follow a lot of, um, for example, um, uh soccer physiotherapists because I enjoy seeing where they where they go and, and what they're talking about. Yeah, um, right. I'm not on Twitter, so I feel like I get a lot of the the 
newest research um, dialogue and conversations around that from LinkedIn. Mm. Um, same with um, LGBTQIA plus research. I follow a lot of advocates who are not necessarily in the research space but are advocating um, for changes and inclusivity in that area, um, especially within healthcare. But in terms of networking, I guess there's two. There's there's there that's kind of quite informal and fluid and and those people don't necessarily know who I am, whether I'm a connection or not. Um, and then there's the more direct ones. And I think um, I haven't had a lot of success messaging people on LinkedIn, um, whether it's they don't reply or... Um, they don't check it for a very long time and by the time they get around to it, it's it's not necessarily the same area of interest and that might be because my areas bounce a lot, my areas of interest bounce a lot, around a lot more. Um, but I think that you do have to do the general stuff but you do actually have to ask directly if you want to talk to someone. The mm. likelihood of someone who is higher up and you've sent them a, you know, you've liked their post or, or congratulations and then messaging you and offering you formal mentoring is very, very, very unlikely. And the even them messaging you and going, oh, would you like to have a chat and I'll share my experiences with you, also very unlikely. Mm. Um, well, Something that can grease the wheels there is a is the face-to-face contact and professional development events and conferences as well and, it, and, and maybe just repetitions there of, of having met someone more than once and then making that on, online connection as well. And we've met here and there, and, and I love that. Uh, if Are you at this conference? It would be great to buy you a coffee and spend five minutes asking you a few tips. There's very few people who would, who would unless they're really busy, um, who would, in that position, who would not want to help you in some way. Often approaching someone with something specific where you want help and they can help you is is going to be more effective than just being indirect and vague. And then if, if you're not sure why someone really is contacting you, you're less likely to respond as well. I want to ask you a couple of questions you know, specific to um, your area of research. It's kind of attractive as well. Who doesn't want to answer questions about things that they're passionate about? People ask me all the time about ACL research. I did my PhD in that area and I teach in musculoskeletal physio and I always get questions. I've just finished a, a session with our first years that went for the hour online. It was a, a tutorial. And then I stayed on there for another 20 minutes uh, answering questions um, until I had to go. Mm-hmm. And then it's it's just, yeah, I could, I could have done it all day, but I had to go to speak to you. So, you know, there's, people want to help as well. Mm-hmm. But it's important to be specific about what you want. It definitely is because um, having that clear objective and whether that's something you say directly to them or mm. or something that guides your conversation um, definitely has a huge impact on on whether or not it's a successful relationship with them. You said something really interesting in there about um, in person, and mm. I think that reflecting on on my own experiences, I finished uni in twenty twenty one, so my the predominant um, part of my networking was online during COVID, during Zoom. Mm. And so navigating, a lot of people said no because they were burnt out and they were busy, especially in healthcare. But a lot of my networking hasn't been in person and I think that's probably worth mentioning. Um, 
the university things and seeing seeing people in person probably but outside of my university network there's a lot of people that I've spoken to and and probably won't meet um in person um isn't that interesting I can list quite a few people now who I have close uh professional connection with and I've worked with and done things with collaborated with and I know their face so well, and I know what shirts they wear, and I don't know what trousers they wear. <laughs> I've never seen them in person. I don't know how tall they are. It's interesting. So the majority of your successful networking and connections and even some of your mentors has been, even if you've seen them before, it's happened online. We're talking online now. Why not take advantage of the amazing times we're in and the, the, the methods we've got? Yeah, be on the phone and being being in person. But we there's an assumption there that in person is stronger than online. But there's there's definitely pros and cons of the two of them. We don't have to travel somewhere and set up a podcast studio. Here we are, and there's there's many advantages. I think another thing is it makes people more likely to make the time for you. If I'm asking someone to come and get coffee with me, even if it's at their own university. Um, they have to block out the travel time and the, the you know, this you have more social chatter, which they're pros and cons yeah. um, when you do in-person events. Whereas um, especially in the last couple of years, the amount of times that I have messaged someone and said, hey, can I have 20 minutes of your time, which mm. is a very small amount of time, but the amount of conversation you can get done in Zoom on twenty in 20 minutes is quite extraordinary. And being specific about what's needed, but also the time as well, is really helpful. That's a really interesting point about I hadn't really reflected on that too much. You do just get straight down to the business at hand quite often when you're on the phone or when you're connecting via video conference. Mm. And so there's, uh, there's less travel, less social chatter. There's a clear benefit for both. And you probably... You might argue that you've had more networking and more mentoring and more connection opportunities um, because of the fact that things went online for a while and a lot of things stayed online. Interesting. Because we quite often talk about the bad parts of being online. Mm. I was going to say there's definitely those pros of having more of it. I think something that I probably missed out on is, in the bigger groups, being able to have those individual conversations with people, um, mm. and it had to be, we had to get really good at formalizing that. And I, I can't remember what event it was, but I remember there was a lecture that I went to, and people were kind of chiming in. Everyone had their cameras on, which uh, it's a teaching teaching dream um, <laughs> in Zoom. But uh, someone was saying something very intelligent, something that I wanted to know more about, but it wasn't super relevant to the lecture, so I had to message them afterwards to ask if they wanted to talk about it more with me because I didn't have that opportunity in person to just be like, hey, tell me a little bit more about that in our break or afterwards, um, which was a little bit awkward because I had no previous connection with this person. I I, I, uh, I think it must have been Monash, so I just I took their first name and their last name and at Monash um, and emailed and said, I think this is probably probably you if it was you you were in this and you said this and I would love to know more about that I was wondering if you had 20 minutes um to have a little zoom meeting and talk further about that um to taking those opportunities I think the more you ask um the more it normalizes it 
yeah. I definitely I went to the APA job show in my at the end of my third year, so a year early because I um, often it, it runs a bit later in the year. So I wanted to feel like I knew what I was doing going into the next year. And I asked every single person that I spoke to again. It was online. And I spoke to six or seven people during that time. I asked every single person, um, bar a couple that I, I they weren't in areas of interest, but the ones that I liked and, and felt like I got a lot out of, I asked if they had 20 minutes to discuss further um, and whether they had an email, um, if I had any questions I could email and that sort of thing. Um, one of them looked me right in the Zoom, I was via Zoom, I was going to say right in the eyes, and goes, this is not the platform to be asking for that. I think it's really disrespectful. Why would you say that? And I was like, oh, okay, no worries. The last two said, yeah, that's fine. No worries, apologies for that. And that was it. And I never spoke to spoke to her again because she didn't want to. But um, I, yeah, had the opportunity to talk further with a grade four from one of the public health networks who happened to be online and she I think we met up two or three times and she gave me some insights into her personal life and how that shaped how she, where she got to and, and gave me some advice on where she thought I might want to look for, for more resources on inclusion and diversity and how we can incorporate them in physio. Um, so I had that opportunity as a result, but with that, I, you know, there were, I asked five people if I could meet with them later. Two of them I didn't. I just sent them email follow-ups and they offered to provide further advice if I pursued a job at their hospital network. Um, that one I um, I met with a couple of times. One of them shot me down and um, the other one never replied to my email when I asked. But um, I think that that experience, that one condensed experience of asking a lot of people meant that I felt comfortable in my approach to just start directly asking people. Mm. You have 20 minutes to discuss. And it was specific and focused and there was a time limit to it. And the people who were helping you or not helping you knew exactly why they were helping you and what you wanted. And uh, you've really sort of outlined some methods there that people, perhaps they're a bit shy or they're, they haven't tried that approach yet and they feel like they could benefit from mentoring or, widening their network, they can use those methods. You just found their email addresses and contacted them and and went forward. So that was, that's really good. And, you know, and I, and I mentioned, I was searching for some words earlier and I said, maybe you've been aggressive with networking and then I changed my mind and I said, maybe sort of more positive and um, I can't remember my word, but it was more strategic perhaps. You, you're far from aggressive very calm person and you're very easy to talk to. So you don't have to be a type A wound up friends with everyone. I'm the life of the party. I'm, I'm everywhere and everyone loves me sort of, you, you can be calm and measured, thoughtful and doing a lot of outgoing communication, reaching out to people. And when that person shot you down in flames in the conversation and, and someone else didn't reply, what happened? Did it cause any harm? No. no. no the world didn't end. There were the no world didn't end. It didn't go up badly upon my reputation. I didn't not get a job because of it. Um, yeah. but no you one learned from it. 
are going to ask me to talk to them for 20 minutes after. And I keep saying 20 minutes and that's just because that's what I did at this particular job show because I didn't know them. Um, but that's not necessarily a, a golden rule or anything. Mm. Like that. I've definitely asked for more or less time depending yeah. on the situation. It's just being clear about what's needed from them and what you want and, and why you're approaching them. So I think they're really important tips for people. I hope that that it's helpful for others listening. I certainly would have loved to hear this when I was in the early stages of my career. How early is too early to do some of this stuff, to find a mentor? I mean, you sort of touched on the um, the perhaps the pros and cons and maybe the, some warnings about students who are already super busy and loaded up with a full-time demanding course. New graduates are the same and not necessarily just loading in lots of stuff, networking opportunities and conferences and saying yes to everything and volunteering here and there, just because you feel like you should build up your CV or resume. But there are benefits as well, which you've mentioned. So, I mean, how early is too early? Do you just sort of, do you see out the first couple of years in university and wait till you're on clinics? I think I know what you're going to say. It depends on the person, but what, what do you think? It does depend on the person, but I think it also depends on and and kind of depends on the person and their capacity, what what you have time for and energy for. But I think partially it depends on what you want out of it. Um, I've definitely been in situations where I've probably asked for advice about something too early um, and been you know, first or second year asking big questions about when I finish and and I didn't really know what direction I was headed in. I think that if you have a question and it relates to um, potentially career, I think I think is probably the biggest one. If you have a question about your career and maybe how you can get there, then it's not too early. And if you're considering, if you have uncertainty about your career or your direction or whatever your interest is, uncertainty is fine. And if you can quantify that in a sort of a question or a what did you do, then it's not too early. So if you were a first year and you just started physio and you were six weeks in and you weren't sure if physio was for you, it wouldn't be unwise or out of scope to say to a third year or a lecturer or anyone within your community, hey, I'm unsure. These are the reasons I'm unsure. Mm. Can we talk about, a little about, a bit about this? What's your expertise? What do you know about, you know, if I was in first year at Monash and, and I was doing musk stuff and it really wasn't sitting with me and I sat down with someone who I felt was a, a tutor at uni even, was like, oh, these are my uncertainties. And they went, what about, how would you feel about and described neuro rehab to me? And I was like, oh, there's more. It's kind of opening your, broadening your horizons a little bit mm. um, because there are always people out there who know a bit more about you about a certain topic, whatever that is. Yeah. So I finding someone, but it's never too early. You could have done that finishing school um, and asking someone, hey, what did you do? Because I'm unsure and building a, kind of mm. dynamic I think it's another important aspect is you don't have to have a mentor who does the same thing as you I think that's a common misconception there's no reason for your physio for your mentor to be a physio it doesn't they don't need to be um yeah you know, they can be a policy maker or or 
the, the best advice I've had career-wise have been from people who weren't physios. Um, and it might have been physio-specific or it might have been physio-relevant, but they don't have to be in the same industry. Mm, that's a really good point. And that's, that opening of the framing of it with I'm unsure, have to come at that from a position of vulnerability and, and honesty. Uh, and then it's a very open start to a conversation. How did you feel when you were in my position? Or it could be information seeking, as you said, someone who's in the first year of a course that's focused on musculoskeletal skills and knowledge may not even know what a neurological physiotherapist does or cardiothoracic physio or peds in your case, the kids. Um, Neuro rehab. This oh, we could go on. Women's health. There's there's so many areas that you don't even know exist, which could be your thing, and you might hear about it for the first time. And so it starts off with this problem, this sort of thing that's keeping you awake at night. That I'm all my friends seem to be having fun doing this, and I'm not actually sure if I want to be here and do this. Maybe I want to be in, outside the health professions, for example, not knowing that your thing is around the corner. That's to me, that's what you're doing with mentoring. It's um, it's that's why it's different from supervision or management or or education or or friendship. Really interesting. So, um, final little part of this conversation to let you go. As a physio, what are the most important skills and and knowledge? So either either that you think you think you put the most amount of time into in your training in hindsight or what's the what are the most important knowledge and skills for a physio for me it's around communication and education I feel like um, something I didn't realize until much later in my degree and even as a new grad is how much power you have as a physio and how much knowledge um, and I take for granted often health literacy um, being able to describe my own pain experiences and when I have pain, knowing where that comes from and what might make it better. Mm. That's the blessing um, and it's something that we need to learn to communicate about. And I think that um, both the communication and the education, you have to kind of understand patients and where walks of life that patients come from. And I think that over my time I tried to put a lot of energy into working out what people do day to day and how all those day to day things, when they present my physio clinic, I have them for a very, very short amount of time. Um, so learning about people's different approaches. Does that make sense? I feel oh, like this is this is good. Um, Go for it. Keep if you've got more to add. Yeah, keep sharing. So the communication, being able to communicate what's going on in my head mm. and being able to listen to what's going on in theirs and kind of making sense of it. I think that um, one thing that I got very good at quickly was checking for understanding. Um, and I think that that's something we can often skip over because I understand the concept, but do they understand the concept? And there's lots of ways of doing that, whether it's teach back or, or how are you going to go about this? Um, but I learned very quickly that the more strategies that you can give someone in a simplified way that they understand it, it can be quite empowering, but if you give them too many strategies, they won't use any of them. Um, so often I start that with what did you know? 
what's your understanding of your condition or your your management or what do you currently do and the more that you can understand them and not necessarily just their condition um, the more you can apply you have this wealth of knowledge all these different options in your head are working out what's going to fit best for the patient I think I think navigating that and all the different everything's complex I've come to the conclusion of even if it's just you know someone cuts their hand um, and I know that's not necessarily that might be the the school nurse in me, um, but there's always there's always things going on, um, whether it be you know things going on at home or a school or um, yeah everything's quite complex. So coming up with a way that you can communicate complexity to a patient and the way that you can understand their complexities. If you think about how complex things obviously are it's quite arrogant to sort of think that, well, oh, I understand everything without a deep reflection on the individual, right, and without checking their understanding. Mm-hmm. Think about it that way. What's your understanding of what's going on? It's a really powerful opening, isn't it? It's not just information gathering. Um, it's also inviting the person to be a part of or of explaining their, their perspectives, right? It's a really good one. What, what, any, got any others? Any other ways to check for understanding? And so the teach back method, um, Susanna on a, and I on a much earlier episode, we talked about that and just structure of clinical communication pitfalls. And um, I think we call it the problem with clinical communication, just as a sort of touching on the pitfalls and as a clickbait title. And then it was a very open discussion about different ways of communicating. We talked about the curse of knowledge where you understand something and you forget what it's like to not understand it. And if you've got someone with, with who lacks understanding of their condition, this is such a bigger problem than we might give it credit for, right? And that transfer of knowledge, what are they going to go away? What are they going to take away and, and tell someone else about their condition? Mm. I think there's there's definitely multiple strategies I use and they're for different age groups and different demographics for sure. Um, and the better that you know a patient, the more likely you are to be able to give them the best strategies. But um, a couple of methods that I definitely use a lot are um, asking them how much capacity they have for particular treatments. So, for example, um, I have a patient that I see or a, a athlete that I see um, relatively regularly um, through soccer and when I ask, are you going to do these exercises, it's usually a no. Um, so we only give him one and he feels like he can manage one exercise, but if I was going to give him three, he wouldn't do any. Um, so yeah. coming up with strategies that's going to work for him. Are you going to do this? I'm very, very brutally honest, sometimes to a fault, but often, um, okay, what have you done about it? What what are you going to be able to do about it? Those kinds of questions. Um, There's yeah. a way of being brutally honest, though. I bet people love you for it. You cut, you can cut through this, the crap, <laughs> can't it, as you'd say, and they they instantly laugh and say, yeah, I'm not doing that. Would you do one exercise? It takes five minutes. Well, yeah, I'll do that, but I don't, I'm not going to probably plow away at this for 45 minutes. And sometimes it's no, I won't do an exercise. There's one um, I do, like I work at, uh, I volunteer at a psychic club um, and I have one who has a hip flexor and injury and I said to him, are you going to do any strength training 
till the end of the year and we've still got a month and a half left and he definitely no I don't have time to okay so we're gonna have to manage you day to day um and it's gonna look a lot different to someone who who uh would do some rehab and therefore it changes my timeline it changes my education um it changes how much I need to get through in my 15 minute chat with him versus someone else if I was going to see him every single session um because he's not going to be training every single session and I think that um yeah the more information that I can get out of him and it doesn't need to be I have an hour to sit down with him and talk about his life experience it's just working out what's relevant um, but therefore my in my education and my communication changes based on how much they know or how much they want to know is another one. Some people don't want to know. They need to know enough to be able to, this is what it is, you've got this in your shoulder, but they don't want to know about the structures. They don't want to know about the biomechanics that just goes over their head, it's too much. Um, so knowledge isn't, it might be powerful to me to know that, but working out how much I need to give someone else. I wish I knew some of this when I was first graduating and working and studying. And in many ways, our collective knowledge of the human and the um, the the human bio, you know, the psychosocial elements of what we do has has increased. And so you've you some of this would have been at least a part of your your training and the way we train you, and and some of it will be from your personal experiences and some from mentoring and and, and working as well. But the way you've put that together is really helpful and just stepping back a little bit and thinking about the evaluating the person's understanding and being brutally honest, as you said, but there's a way of doing that as well to earn people's trust and, and, and maintaining that connection with them and getting closer to the truth. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot in there for people to reflect on and think about and myself included. That's really good. Any final thoughts? I've got to let you go. Um, I think building that confidence to be able to ask someone for something is tricky, being able to ask questions. And I think that you have that time, especially networking or something, you have that time to build some questions about what you want and kind of orientate yourself to, I think self-reflection is essentially where I'm getting at. It's very important to be able to reflect both after and before. So if I'm going in to see a patient, what do I need to get out of this? What do I need to know about them? I'm reflecting back afterwards, okay, how did that go? But I think something that we don't talk about enough is reflecting before. So in these networking instances, I've gone in and I've asked, I've reflected on what I want to know, what I want to get out of it. Um, And I think that's applicable, whether it's mentoring or networking or an informal extracurricular, what do I want to get out of this? Um, And it goes the same with, with treating patients. Um, what do I need to get across and and whether I want to try a new strategy or um, a new mode of education or, or mm. I want to be better at this, um, that pre-reflection. And you have to give yourself space for that to work when you run off your feet and you're in your own head. That's a difficult thing to do. So if someone who's done a lot of stuff and is still doing a lot of stuff and in many ways on the surface level it's appeared like you're quite aggressively pursuing stuff but we we know that now that you're uh, very measured and thoughtful and have a lot of reflection before and after you know in the way you've approached opportunities and approach people and approach problems in the clinic so it's very interesting 
Very good. We, we need to do a part two of this at some stage, but I reckon we're out of time today. We're going to get on with other things, but um, thanks very much, Jess, for coming on. It's a very different conversation for the ones we might have if you're coming into the uni and helping with some teaching, or if I see you in the corridor and I ask, how's your PhD going? Oh, that's good. We can we really got into the the um, the weeds there and into the depth of the topic. I, I really enjoyed that. So thanks very much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me, Luke. All right, everyone. So thank you for listening. And it's really good to have you as a part of this podcast and what we're doing here and uh, hopefully taking a different view of some problems and applying it in a presenting it in a way that we hope is really helpful for you in your development, your journey. So um, if you're enjoying it, share it with friends and share it on social media and help get the word out to other people. So we'll leave it there. So thanks, Jess. And until next time, this is Jess Coventry and Luke Perriton wishing you all the very best with your studying, professional development and lifelong learning.